Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of, its, of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. 
And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning, church. So we've been studying Exodus. This is a two-part sermon series. We've been studying the first uh, half of the book or so, or two-thirds of the way uh, through this series. And we'll be picking it up again in the spring uh, to go through much of the rest of the book. This series focuses on God, how he guides and cares for his people. So we started 12 chapters ago hearing about the Hebrews. They had come to Egypt about four centuries earlier, and when they came, they came because Joseph saved all of Egypt and much of the rest of this, uh, the geographical world there, including his family, and he moved his entire family to Egypt. At the time, there was about 70 of them. And between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, we fast forward about 400 years or so, and the new pharaohs in Egypt have forgotten about Joseph. They forgot the good things that the Hebrew people had done to save the nation of Egypt, and they enslaved the people. There was somewhere around 2 million or so Hebrews, and these slaves built many of the monuments that we can still see in Egypt today. And their suffering was great. We see the plight of the people. Their Egyptian slave owners were not kind to them. They demanded hard work. And one day, one of the pharaohs looked out over his kingdom, and he became worried that this immigrant group had grown too strong. And as he looked over the people, he said, what are we going to do if they become stronger than us? What are we going to do if we get attacked by a foreign power? And this group of Hebrew people joins their side. And he said, we're going to start killing. We're going to start murdering all their young boys as they're born. But we see this, this group of incredibly strong women, the midwives of the Hebrews, and they stand up to Pharaoh, and they don't do what he says. And Pharaoh goes deeper and deeper into his idolatry, and he finally orders that all the babies be killed in a different way. And one family stands apart, and they say, we will not do this. And they put their little boy Moses into a basket, and they actually float him right towards uh, a house of the aristocracy. And Moses gets picked up by one of the daughters or one of the relatives of Pharaoh, and she takes this little boy into her home. And he gets raised as an Egyptian. And then fast forward another 40 years, and Moses, this little baby that was saved, is out one day, and he sees an Egyptian in the process of killing a Hebrew. And he thinks that he can start this revolution on his own. And so he takes up arms of some kind, and he kills this Egyptian, and he buries his body in the sand. And he's out again later, possibly the next day, and he sees two Hebrews fighting each other. And he says to the two men, what are you doing? Like, we're the same people. And the guy beating up his fellow Hebrew says, look, man, don't judge me. Are you going to kill me like you killed that other guy? 
And Moses realizes that he's been found, and so he runs away. And he runs all the way to the land of Midian. And when he's found there by a group of shepherds, this group of women who he ends up heroically saving says, we were saved by an Egyptian. Moses, unsurprisingly being raised in the house of Pharaoh, looked, talked like, was educated like an Egyptian, but he was very different. God chose him to help lead his people to freedom. So Moses gets married, has children, and 40 years after he flees to the land of Midian, God calls him and he says, you're going back. You're going back to Egypt and you're going to lead my people out of this land, all two million of them. And I can only imagine Moses' first thought being all of the military lessons that he assuredly received in his Egyptian school. See, Egypt had not only, not only were they building some of the largest monuments that the world would ever see, at that time they had the largest military that the world had ever seen. And what made them powerful were these chariots, and they could literally ride through armies. What chance does an enslaved people have to break free of a master like that? And so the last several Sundays, we've been talking about the power of God. God, through Moses, brought nine plagues on Egypt. We've been talking about them sequentially, and today I'm going to talk about the tenth. And so this sermon is entitled, The God Who Passes Over. And in this, like all of the other sermons that we've heard, we're going to hear a story about a God who cares deeply for his people and guides his people to freedom. So today's sermon has four things I want to talk about. The first is a God who prepares. The second is a God who judges. The third is a God who passes over. And the fourth answers the question, how can God both judge and pass over? So a God who prepares, a God who judges, a God who passes over. And how can a God both judge and pass over? Before I go further, let me pray. God, we as a people need you. God, I need you. I pray, Lord, that your wisdom be made evident to everyone here this morning. God, may we see ourselves for who we are. God, we are a people who deeply need you. May we see that. May we believe that. May we humble ourselves to you, God, so that you can be our king. In your name I would pray. Amen. So the God who prepares. So God is preparing his people in two different ways. The people have been enslaved, as I said, for over 400 years. And as I think we could probably all agree here in the United States, freedom is not always a good thing. Also, God had mostly been silent to his people. There's no biblical stories of God speaking to his people during all of these centuries. And so the people needed to know God and to trust God. And so God orchestrates the events around their lives so that they can understand who he is and understand how powerful he is. 
And God does this by bringing these various plagues on Egypt. Let me talk about last week's, the plague of darkness. So Moses goes before Pharaoh for the ninth time, and he says, Pharaoh, we got to go to the desert. We're going to go worship our God. You need to let us go. And Pharaoh says, no, we're not doing that. I'm not losing my source of labor. And Moses says, look, if you don't do this, there's going to be a darkness set upon Egypt that is so dark that you can feel it. I don't know if any of you have ever walked in the woods without a light, without the moon, without stars, where even after your eyes have adjusted to the dark, you still can't see anything. But this was the darkness that God set upon Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And after three days of this darkness, Pharaoh called Moses back in. He said, look, you need to pray for me. You need to bless me. The darkness has to go. So the darkness is lifted. But Pharaoh once again changes his mind. I often wonder, what would happen if Pharaoh said yes? What would have happened if after all of these nine plagues, Pharaoh said, you know what? I get it. Your God is stronger than me, stronger than the sun god Ra, who is the main god in Egypt. Just go. And I think that probably we ask ourselves questions like this in our lives today. We say, God, have I not suffered enough? Why can't you deliver me now? And here, at least, is the answer for what happened 4,000 years ago. God's full power can only be seen in the worst of situations. If the situation wasn't allowed to become worse, the people would have never seen God's full power for what it was. Imagine if God had saved Jesus from the crucifixion. Would we ever see God's, would we ever see Christ's uh, rebirth? Would we ever see Christ risen from the dead if that situation wasn't allowed to continue to its worst possible moment? So we see God preparing his people through these terrible situations. And Pharaoh, trapped by his idols, refuses to kneel to God. Hands down, the best sermon on idols I've ever heard was the one that Greg gave here at the beginning of this series. And I would encourage any of you, all of you, to look that up if you haven't heard it on our website. Secondly, we see God preparing his people for freedom, preparing his people to trust and obey him. God tells the people how to avoid this coming consequence. So in the 10th plague, God says, I'm coming, and I'm coming to judge all of Egypt, everyone. But Israelites, Hebrews, if you want to miss judgment, here's how you do it. And God gives them instructions on how to avoid this coming judgment. And we shouldn't be surprised because God tells us how to avoid the consequences of judgment all the time. Let me just give one example from the New Testament. Uh, God tells us how to live in community with each other. And specifically, there's one portion where God says, if you have a problem in your community, if there's someone that you're not getting along with, here's how you go and fix that. And the Bible says, if you have a problem with somebody who's, who's in your church, 
You need to go to them one-on-one and figure it out. And if that doesn't work, you need to gather two or three witnesses who can help establish the facts and go back and try again. And if that still doesn't work, go and get the leaders of your church and do it as a group. This is the way the Bible teaches us to live in community with each other. Now, we can do it that way, or we could do what the Egyptians did in this example. The Egyptians knew what they needed to do in order to avoid this plague. They had seen all of the other plagues come true. But they decided not to do it, and they suffered the consequence. We can do the same thing. Instead of going to that person one-on-one to working through a, a problem that we're having, we can slander, we can gossip, we can tell our side of the story to as many people as possible and garner support. We can do all those things that immediately make us feel better when we're wronged by someone. And I can tell you that as a leader of this church, I've seen both practiced here at CBC over the years. And I can also empirically say that the former way always works better always works better. God prepared the Hebrew people for freedom. God prepares us for freedom too. The New Testament gives us all sorts of examples of how to be good children, how to be good parents, how to be good spouses, how to be good employees and employers, how to live in community with each other. The question is, will we listen or will we endure the consequences? So secondly, God judges Now, God faces a lot of criticism from us, and he faces it from both sides. There's people who say, God judges too much. Don't judge me, man. That doesn't make me feel comfortable. And there's also people who say, God doesn't judge enough. Let me give a little bit more, a little bit, uh, some more details on, on, on this. So a former presidential candidate was questioning a friend of mine in Congress publicly because he was being appointed to a position that required congressional approval. And this presidential candidate looked at my friend on national television and pointed his finger and said, because you are a Christian, you deserve no place in government. Anyone who feels like they can tell other people what to do in an empirical moral sense does not belong in the public sphere. Now, that's not an exact quote, but that is identical to the meaning of what this person said. In essence, what they're saying is, if God judges people, he can't be loving. If God judges people, he can't be loving. How on earth can we tell anyone, the argument goes, that what they're doing is wrong? And on the other side of the coin, there's a lot of people who think that God judges too little. We look around our world, we see all these terrible things happening, and we say, why does God let bad things happen to good people? If God were real, if God were loving, he would surely intervene, thereby judging wrongdoers. So let me answer both of these. God has to judge in order to be loving. You could never, for example, tell a victim of ongoing sexual assault that you love them and not take up their cause. You could never brush something like that under the rug, tell them that it's okay, tell them that it doesn't matter. 
How could you possibly convince somebody that you love them and not protect them, not take up their cause? A God who doesn't judge doesn't care. Conversely, if God did stop evil through immediate judgment, we would have all perished a long time ago. None of us is worthy to survive that kind of judgment. All of us cause hurt, if not directly, then indirectly. God empowers us to stop evil and actually commands us to do so. So for people who say that God judges too little, what I would say is God actually gives us the power, the command, and the resources to stop evil where we see it. But here's the tricky part, church. We actually want to judge, we want God to judge on a curve. So that everybody worse than us gets judged, but we are free from judgment. Let me give two examples of this. I ended up taking a 12-hour car ride on Wednesday, and in preparation for it, I brought a banana. Now, as it turns out, I was woefully underprepared for the amount of time that I was going to be driving and my need for calories. So the banana didn't survive the trip outside of Williamstown on my way to southern Pennsylvania. And I put the banana peel on my floor. And a couple hours into the trip, not only was I hungry, but I smelled this banana peel. And it didn't smell as good as when I ate it. And I'm going down the highway through New York, and there's just woods everywhere. And it's a stinky banana peel. So I rolled down my window, and I threw it out. I threw it really far, so it got in the grass. So it's not really littering, right? <clears throat> but then on the same trip, when I was in one of the cities, the person in front of me rolled down their window, and there goes a cigarette butt right outside the window. And you can always tell, especially at night when you're driving behind people who throw their cigarette butts out the window, because there's a little, like, spark on the road. And I remember something that I heard when I was growing up. Somebody said, you know, I wish that when people threw old diapers outside of their window, when they, like, threw them out of their car, that this little black hole would open up, and it would envelop the diaper, and then magically the other end of this portal would appear in their kitchen, and like that dirty diaper would just land right on their kitchen table. That would serve them right. And you know what? I agree. People who throw out diapers and cigarette butts on the street and there's no place for that, but banana peels, that's entirely different. As Tim Keller would say, when others don't tell the truth, it's because they're liars. When I don't tell the truth, it's because it's complicated. See, we want everything to be judged that either affects us directly or everything that is worse than us. But here's the problem, church. God judges equally and by one standard, which is perfection. And none of us can bear that standard. God judges everyone equally and by one standard, which is perfection. So we see God coming to Egypt and he says, my judgment is coming. And it's going to affect everyone that's there. Church, 
If there isn't a God who will judge evil, what hope does our world have? But if there is a God who judges evil, what hope do we have? Tim Keller said that one too. But he and I had coffee earlier this week. He told me I could quote him without referencing him. So that leads to point number three, the God who passes over. But first, let me tell you why God won't pass over. So the Hebrews, they're the victims in this story, but we should never equate victimhood with innocence. God didn't save the Hebrews because they were more morally superior or the most morally worthy of the two groups of people here. And notice what God didn't say to them. God didn't say, you know what, I'm going to pass over because you be you, and as long as you're authentic, I'll sort of let you do what you want. God didn't say, you've tried pretty hard and you've sacrificed a lot, so I'll just ignore the smaller wrong parts of your life. God didn't say, as long as you believe that what you're doing is right, then I think you'll be all set. I think that sometimes, especially for people like me, who have grown up in the church, it's easy to think that all of the good things that we do, all the sacrifices that we make, has somehow garnered the favor of God. Like we deserve God's goodness because we sacrifice, because we work hard in the church, we work hard with our families, we work hard for others. But that standard of perfection is such that none of those things matter. I also think that sometimes we, especially as Protestant evangelicals, tend to take faith and turn it into a work. And we say something like, my faith is so strong that I know that I'm good. The problem is, is that no matter how much good we do, we've all already missed that standard of perfection. And no matter how hard we believe, no matter how much we empirically know in our soul that God exists, that Jesus raised from the dead, although it's required, it is not sufficient. Pharaoh saw God's miracles. Pharaoh saw God's power. It was not sufficient. Satan saw Jesus raised from the dead. Satan knows God's power. It is not sufficient to know. So what is sufficient? Verse 13 in chapter 12 tells us. It says, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. God didn't say, when I get to the Hebrew part of town, I'm just going to leapfrog it. When I get to where all the good people live, I'll skip it. When I get to the place where all the people try hard, I'll just go right over. When I see the blood, that is the only differentiator between these two groups. And it really is the only differentiator for us. There is nothing we can do to make God pass over us. 
So how does God do this? How can God both judge and pass over? And I think the answer here lies in the details of the Passover meal that the Hebrews had this night of the plague and also how Jesus celebrated the Passover. So let me explain both of those before we move into communion. So as Laurie read earlier, the Hebrews would take this goat or a lamb that was without blemish. And what that means is it didn't have any spots. It was all white. Because a lamb without spots was sort of seen as the perfect lamb. It was unblemished. It was unsoiled. It was superior in some ways to the ones that had spots. The animal would actually live with them for several days, which seems kind of gross because cats are all I can handle. Having a goat in your house doesn't seem like a great thing. Uh, But I think ultimately it may have been done so that the people would be used to this animal. It would live with their family for a short time. It wasn't some, like, there's a goat out in the field. I don't care about it. It isn't named. It's very different. It would live with them in their house. And after four days, they would take it outside and they would slaughter it. And they would collect the blood in a bowl. And they would take a hyssop plant and they would take that blood and they would spread it on the top of their doorpost and down both sides. Was this animal the reason that God was judging them? No. This animal had nothing to do with God's judgment. Animals aren't able to sin in any way. This animal hadn't done anything wrong. It was an animal of immense value. The ones without spots were more valuable than the ones with spots. So the Hebrews took these perfect animals who hadn't done anything wrong. They killed them. And they put the sign of that innocence on their house. Jesus, when he was eating the Passover meal, the night before he was killed, we read this about it in Matthew 26. As they, Jesus and his disciples, were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the promise, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Passover meal is the Old Testament version of communion. During the Passover meal, this innocent animal would be killed And it would cover the sins so that when God passed over, when judgment came, the blood of the innocent animal would cause the people inside the home to not be judged. Jesus then becomes this Passover lamb. So for those of you who maybe are new to church, uh, we often sing songs that talk about the lamb of God, the Passover lamb, the innocent blood all these sort of like church lingo things. And this is what it's talking about. The Passover lamb is Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross was for all of us the same thing that the death of this lamb was for each individual household. God has to judge. There has to be a payment for our evil. 
God can't not judge because that wouldn't be loving. So we may say that it's not fair that God judges. We may think that it's, it's unfair that God says there are some things that are always good and there are some things that are always evil. There may be things that seem culturally irrelevant and we wonder why God said this. We think it's unfair that he judges us for it. But here's the real punchline. God is the one who's going to take that judgment. God is the one who's going to take that punishment. We may, in our arrogance, think that God is unjust. But how unjust can he be if he's the one who's willing to take that punishment on our behalf? We've recently put our kids on a technology stranglehold. And uh, with some help of some friends, we made some various devices turn off after an hour. And yesterday, one of my boys was in the middle of his game, and the device shut off. And he pointed it to me because he wanted me to punch in the code. And I'm like, I'm sorry, bud. No more technology. You are out of minutes. He said, but that's not fair. Now, I could have said, you know what? You're right, it's not fair, but tough. Go find something to do. But what I said was, well, you know, life's hard, but why don't we go do this? God knows that we're not perfect. God knows that we can't stand up to that judgment. God sent his son so that he could stand up to that judgment for us. Let's pray. God, we love you and we need you. God, we know that your judgment is coming. We know that we are not perfect. We are indebted, God, that you would take our punishment for us so that we can be seen by you as clean and perfect and sinless. God, may we love you and honor you. In your name I would pray. Amen.